I'm glad to be here. Hi, Paul. Glad you're here with us, Charlie. Besides being uh, an accomplished model railroader, is uh, I looked at Charlie's website. I picked up on a couple links about his model railroad photography. I had noticed that a lot of the model railroad, like magazine sites, forums, and so forth, they'll always have a thread like weekend photo fun. Now, one of the things I noticed, and it struck a chord with me, is is people aren't just putting photos of a car or a locomotive posed on a table. They're actually posing them on a scenic portion of their of their layout. And a number of these people are doing it very professional. I started seeing my model railroad in the area that had the best opportunity to photograph locomotives and cars. So a lot of people like to do it. So when I saw Charlie's website, the two sub uh, websites he's got on photography that just really struck my interest so uh with that we are here to talk with charlie comstock charlie is a columnist for model railroad hobbyist magazine and is a and his regular feature is the up the creek column charlie also contributes to special articles like the one in the july august 2010 issue called modeling decrepit spur tracks which is coming up this summer charlie's also as i said earlier is a accomplished photographer and his website is the B C S what is that a J J the B C S J R R dot com which is the Bear Creek and South Jackson Railroad and it contains links to two of his other sites he has created on model photography. The first is the outdoor model photography and the second is the model railroad photography. And they're beautiful sites with beautiful pictures guys you need to check it out. So, uh, Charlie, welcome. Let's get right into it. Are you a photographer in your real life? Well, no, I'm not, actually. I was a software geek at a computer company. I sort of picked up on photography when I got started in trains. I played around the trains when I was a teenager, but lost interest. And, well, I guess, 96 or 95, I started getting more interested again. And I built a 4x8 layout, and at some point I started thinking it'd be cool to start trying to take pictures of it. So I had this antique Minolta camera, 35 SLR film camera. I dragged it out and I started trying to take pictures of the train. Boy, the pictures didn't look very good at all. I had lousy lighting and didn't know much about composition or technical stuff on the camera. So I kept plugging away at it, learned a bunch more, and things just kind of got better over time. Okay, Annette, the work that I'm looking at on your website right now is is incredible. You must uh, live out in the country, judging by some of these uh, natural backdrops that are behind your diorama. Well, if you're talking about the section of the website with uh, features the Redland diorama, yeah, you bet. I'm uh, I'm not in the middle of nowhere, but uh, he can drive there in about five minutes from my house. <laughs> Okay. So it's, well, it's helpful, you know, being able to look out the backyard, see a wall of dug furs. How'd the idea for the diorama come up? What sent you off on that pathway? Well, I had a time saver that I built a long time ago. I scenic it. I, you know, put some bushes and trees and little raw hills on and a tiny little pond I filled with Envirotech. When I moved into this new house here out in the country, I was thinking, I wonder how this would look taking pictures outdoors. So I set it on the railing of the deck and uh, took some took some pictures of it. They, they looked pretty good. Really no substitute for real sunlight for simulating real sunlight. I mean, even scales down to HO, no problem. <laughs> so I was uh, looking at that and and, uh, thinking those pictures looked pretty good. And I think I mentioned to, oh, who was it at MR then? It might have been Andy or it might have been Terry Thompson, I don't remember, that uh, would they be interested in an article on outdoor photography? And they said, yeah, so the uh, Redland Diorama was born. I, I built it purely to take pictures on outside. 
And so there was an article, I think it was the April 2007 issue about taking outdoor pictures on a diorama. There's some picture, some pictures in there. And then if you want to see the other pictures that didn't make it in there, then they're on my website. Okay. Now explain for everybody when you use the term time saver, what do you mean? Well, I think I know what you mean, that, but explain it. Well, that was a game that John Allen, John Allen was a famous uh, model railroader in the late 40s and 50s and 60s and early 70s. And he devised this switching game. It's got five spurs and five freight cars and a locomotive. And there's a power pack for it that you can run the locomotive three speeds, you know, off, forward, and backward. You can't you can't uh, vary the velocity of the locomotive other than just going forward or going backward. And the idea is to move the five cars from one position to another position as quickly as possible. And the thing is cramped and the switching is, switching problems are really nasty on that. And I built one. I had the Lynn Westcott book, Railroading with John Allen, and I saw it in there. I thought that would be kind of neat. So I built one and put scenery on it. Anyway, it made a good prop for uh, taking some outdoor pictures. In fact, I got an honorable mention in a model railroader photo contest with a picture I took on that uh, time saver. Okay. So are you still using the same diorama or the other photos I'm seeing here? Have you made a new one since? Well, the other photos, I, I made a diorama purposely for, for uh, taking outdoor pictures on diorama. On the, it, uh, it was much better, uh, you know, it, it had much better level of scenery on it than the uh, time saver had. I also used it to uh, play around with uh, building stuff with pink foam. I backed pink foam up and carved it. So it, uh, it's a different layout. It's not the time saver that you'd see in that uh, April 2007 article. Oh, okay. So, yeah, the Redland diorama is not the time saver. Okay. The time saver, you know, hung around in my layout for a long time, you know, building some temporary bench work and a little bit of temporary track. And I'd hang it onto what was there and I'd have another town on the layout to switch, which was handy when you're only have like two towns, made it 50% more towns to switch. Okay. Now, I'm looking at the one with all the SP Blackwood uh, SD9s photos in the town where you illustrate. This, this is on the website? Yes, on your website. Okay. And I like the way that within each photo, the text block, you tell us about the light, how you use the light. Uh, you discuss the quality of light the benefits of a low angle and so forth. This is a tutorial uh, in photography as I look at this. With all this well, insight you've got in here. Well, if you want to look at the uh, diorama section on the website, I didn't really intend that as a uh, tutorial on photography. I just, I guess I sort of liked the pictures that I took. You know, some of them worked out pretty good. Some of them were filmed, some of them were digital. And, uh, okay. So I just uh, shared them. You, you talked about the weekend photo fun. You know, people, yeah. people with model railroads oftentimes really love to share pictures of their uh, modeling, especially if it looks halfway decent. Somebody who's good with a camera can make a layout look better than it looks in person, actually, if you get the right lighting and the right background. Oh, I, I agree. And one of the things I find intimidating when I look at some of the articles of the really large layouts and you look at the, the footprint of the, the track work and then you've got these vignettes in the, uh, the photos. And I go, good grief, how long has the person been you know, working on this. And then somebody said, well, don't be too confused. He said, I've only got 10% of the layout done. You just keep seeing the photos from the 10% that I've, I've got done. So maybe that's their shortcut, but good grief, you're right. It just looks incredible. Looks real. Well, bear in mind the ones that are in that 
the Redland Diorama 2004 to 2005 webpage, those were all shot on a two foot by six foot diorama, and that was it. Wow. I mean, they do. They, well, I take and, that back. I sometimes cheated a little bit. I got a fairly cheat? big train room, and there wasn't uh, much in the way of trains in it yet when I did this. And so I'd sit the diorama on a couple of sawhorses, and then I'd pick a piece of wood and where the background was going to be, you know, like plywood, and yeah. that I'd maybe prop some other buildings up on it or prop some trees up on it and then aim the whole thing so the, you could see the blue blue wall of the train room. I, the whole room, train room was painted sky blue to, well, to simulate sky, I guess. And so some of the indoor pictures take advantage of that so there, there might be a little more scenery there. Then the outdoor pictures, the purpose of, one of the purposes of outdoors was to try to use the natural scenery that you've got for the backdrop. I mean, it looks pretty realistic. If, you, uh, if you're far enough away from it, it looks pretty good. It looks One up. of the things about using full-size scenery for a backdrop on a model is you've got to be careful how far away the model is from the scenery. In HO, a foot is 87 feet. So if you've got the uh, diorama two feet wide, and then you've got some full-size trees that are, say, 50 feet back from the layout, it appears like those trees should be growing in the middle of the layout, in the middle of the diorama. So you need to make sure that stuff is going to be more than, say, you know, 200 feet away. Otherwise, it just doesn't look right. It looks all screwy. Okay. What were you going to say, Ryan? <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I was going to say it looks beautiful, Charlie, and uh, I assume it looks like the sky in a lot of these looks very realistic, so I would assume it is the outdoor photo. But right now I'm looking at one from uh, the Redland Diorama. It's number... Eight, and it's a close-up of a cab forward what a beautiful yep. picture and part of the problem with taking such decent close-ups is kind of like you were mentioning earlier it's very important that the details in the scene that you're shooting are done right and for example on your railroad crossing sign I mean I know it can be hard to get decals and everything lined up just right but oh, you're gonna laugh that railroad crossing sign is like a a dime a dozen plastic sign. You're kidding. No, I'm not. It looks but great. What I do to them is I, uh, I, you know, I paint the back side of them. Well, I used to paint the back side of them black. Now I paint them silver. And then after that paint dries, I paint it white again. Because otherwise the light will shine, will go right through the plastic. The plastic is translucent. Oh, so okay. Black paint or silver paint makes it opaque. And so you don't have the whole thing looking like it's uh, being haunted. Ah, <laughs> oh, good tip. Good tip. Okay. But this shot in general, um, whoa, I That's am an way... indoor shot, by the way. That is an indoor shot. Okay. But um, yeah. is That's your camera... On the background. Okay. Is your camera um, like right there or is it on a tripod and it zoomed in? I don't remember whether I had it on a tripod or not. It, uh, I was shooting with a Canon PowerShot G2, which is a, sort of a prosumer level you know, compact. It's not a point and shoot. It's uh, got manual everything on it, but it's fairly small. And I think I might have, uh, it might have been on a tripod or I might have been sitting there, but the, that's a fairly wide angle shot, actually. Okay. So, yeah, it's it's really up front and personal. The cab forward is a Broadway Limited AC, AC5. Well, it looks great. It looks very real. Very oh, yeah, they do. The Plug Phoenix Express, those are super trees there in the foreground. Oh, are they? Okay. Yeah, you get your, your foliage to stick better than I do. <laughs> Very full. 
So what time of year is is this particular diorama set for? I oh, guess it's... it's having trouble making up its mind. Okay. Part of it I made too green, and part of it I, I didn't. So it uh, looks a little, you know, in person it would look a little screwy. Yeah, but um, you made it for taking shots. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. You know, judging from that picture, I'd say it's probably, uh, you know, June or something, maybe July. Okay. At least that's June or July here in Oregon. <laughs> All or right. at least, you know, Western Oregon. Well, over these years of teaching yourself photography, especially with model trains, is there a particular tip or two that you could give a shout out to the uh, the model railroad listeners that, that you've uh, kind of taken to heart? Lighting. Lighting. Lighting counts for an awful lot. Okay. You've got crummy lighting, you're probably going to get a crummy picture. When I say crummy lighting, that would be you know, lighting that isn't uh, well balanced. If you, get a, if you get a mixture of incandescent lamps and fluorescent lamps, those have such different color temperatures to them. The incandescent lamps tend to be reddish, yellowish, and the fluorescents are going to be much bluer. And if, if you mix the two of those together, you know, if you've got a digital camera, the poor computer in the camera won't be able to figure out where to set the white balance. You know, also, you know, it's really tricky. You want to have lots of light, but you don't want to have it blasting the, the scene out. Sometimes it works best to have the light way far away. And in some cases, I, when I've tried to simulate the last light of the day before the sun went down, I'll have a single halogen floodlight on a, on a stand, and it'll be like 30 feet away from the trains I'm uh, shooting. You know, when I get the uh, backdrop up in the train room, I won't be able, I mean, the center peninsula backdrop, I won't be able to do that anymore, but for now I can, and uh, it's uh, very effective. If nothing else, it means that the light rays getting to the railroad are almost entirely parallel with each other instead of being spread out. If you've got the light up very close, then the light rays are spreading out when they get to the railroad. Yeah. The other thing that happens is, since the light source is so far away, there's not much difference in intensity if you've, if you've got part of the train that's right in front of the camera and then part of it that's farther away. There's uh, not much light fall off as you get farther away because the light is so far back already, so that, that makes a difference. I mean, having the light far away means that you get sharp shadows, too, instead of boldest shadows. If you're trying to shoot a hazy day, then fluorescent lights on the ceiling are fine for that because they, they diffuse the light and you don't have very distinct shadows anyplace. You get sort of a dark area underneath things, but you don't get really sharp shadows from dual 48-inch fluorescent fixtures. Okay. So on photo number 11 of the Redland diorama, is that an example of, because uh, that looks like end of daylighting. Okay, this was sort of a, a foggy day picture here. Okay. The, uh, this is on that Redland diorama that's uh, two foot wide on the end you're standing at. Basically, the camera's lens is sort of poking over the end of the layout, looking at those SD7s. And uh, about six feet away, the layout. And if you look really close, you can see something bluish down there. And that's a, uh, that's a pickup truck. That's about four feet away. And then two feet beyond that is the end of the layout and then beyond that is uh real trees the neighbor's uh hay field and uh, <laughs> okay. the sky but it was it was sort of an overcast day it hadn't really made up its mind yet what it was going to do i think so okay. this is a case where we've got fairly diffuse light going well in your experience of, of playing around with all this different techniques for lighting and lighting being so important have you run into a situation where you can't really use outdoor lighting say a fixed railroad that you photographed do you have any tips on trying to get the the most realistic sunlight, fake sunlight? Indoor layout? Yeah, for an oh. indoor layout. How do you get that 
real looking sunlight because photo number 12 looks like it was shot outside. Photo 12 was shot outside. So is it hard to duplicate that inside? Very. Is it? That's why they're talking about having the light far away because you want to have all the light rays getting to the model being parallel so the shadows are sort of lining up. You also need, it's difficult to get the balance between the sky bowl light, which tends to be a little bluish, and then direct sunlight, which tends to be yellower. It, I, I know I was just talking about mixtures of uh, fluorescent and incandescent, but I found that using a, uh, a halogen bulb, which is about 3,200 degrees Kelvin for temperature, that uh, Kelvin is a way that you measure color temperature in light bulbs, and, and a regular incandescent, like 100 watt, you screw in the ceiling fixture, that would be about 2,700. Daylight's about 5,000, and the sky bowl overhead could be 7,000. So the, the higher the temperature gets, the more blue it gets. Anyway, the, uh, the key to it simulating the sunlight are you need to have focused light, and then you need to have a balance between direct light that comes presumably from the sun or your simulated sun and the sky bowl overhead. Without the sky bowl overhead, you don't have much diffuse lighting. Uh, the shadows are inky black and uh, you know super high contrast. So if you balance those correctly, so you have bluish light, and I, I've got 4100 degree Kelvin uh, fluorescent tubes in my train room that uh, I often use to try to simulate the sky bowl effect, and then I'll shine a halogen directly on, and then I'll color balance the scene for somewhere in between with my digital camera, and that means that the sunlight tends to be yellower, and the and the fluorescents make a sky bowl, and if I can, if I can get the a right amount of uh, direct light on by moving the halogen light closer or farther away to vary the, the brightness of it, then that can give a, a fair way of approximating this, but it's still not going to be quite right. It's extremely difficult to make really convincing sunlight indoors. Now, does it help to, I, I have a friend of mine that is like a wedding real photographer, and he uses one of those light uh, gadget things, you know, flash a light and it measures the light. Oh, you mean an uh, exposure meter? Yeah, does that help? Well, we can uh, take a lot of the guesswork out of it. Yeah, okay. You can uh, use those to measure how much light there is and, and under each set of lights and then try to adjust things based on the readout of that. I actually have a light meter, but I don't use it very much. I cheat and just use the, the metering system and the camera. I point it at the scene I want and see what it reads and I you know, mess around with different lighting and try that. Okay, well, one more question for me on the on the shooting with lighting. What do you do with white balance? Do you hold up a white card in front of it first or...? How do you adjust your white balance? If I really care about white balance, I'll use the white card method. Okay. Otherwise, I can uh, just take the camera and uh, you know, my new camera, it's a, I got a Canon uh, digital SLR, and that lets me dial in a white balance in degrees Kelvin. Oh, really? Cool. So if I'm shooting underneath the lights in the train room, which are supposed to be 4,100 degrees Kelvin, I'll just set the camera to 4,100. And it turns out it's not quite accurate, but Photoshop's pretty good at correcting for things if you uh, if you know the right tools to use. Huh? And uh, so I can uh, I can get whites to being pretty white again after that. Okay, uh, great. If I, if I really care about white balance, though, the, uh, the white card is the way to go. But if you've got mixed lighting, if you're trying to do sun with one light and diffuse with other lights, you got to be careful. Which, which lights do you uh, set the white uh, the white card up underneath to shoot for the exposure. Uh, sometimes the best thing to do is to take a couple of shots and go back to the computer and put them in the computer and have a look at them. I uh, squandered some money and bought a uh, calibration device for my monitor. It sort of sticks on the front of the monitor and then your software it runs and it measures how much light is coming out of the monitor and 
whether it's red or blue or green, and it tweaks color profiles in the computer to make it be correct. Do those so, work? I've seen uh, those, and they're not cheap. Some of them work better than others. Okay. None of them are ultra cheap, and some of them can be ridiculously expensive. I think I spent 130 bucks on the one I've got. And, and do you f find that it gives you pretty good crisp colors, correct colors in Photoshop? I find that it does, actually. It, uh, and it gives me some confidence that if I'm eyeballing colors in Photoshop, that what I think is right on isn't going to look really green to somebody else who's got a properly color-balanced system. Right. Now, that said, some people have computers hooked up to widescreen TVs, and widescreen TVs have this, you know, set the color tint balance on them, and it's possible to have uh, color balance on a widescreen TV be really off. Yeah, it and is. So something that actually is correct can look really wrong on those. I was over at a friend's house with some video that I shot the other night, and one of the buildings that I just put on the layout has got some, it's pretty red, and it was looking like lavender instead of red. And uh, we went and looked at his tint control, and somebody had taken his tint control and cranked it way <laughs> over one way or another. And, uh, and the whole thing was sort of uh, looking a little putrid. So it's, uh, it, it's really hard. You know, you've got to have to, to, to make it be perfect in terms of coloration. You've got to have complete control over the color balance from the lighting to the camera to the display device and even the ambient light that's in the room when you're looking at a display device can make a difference. Charlie, looking at one of the pages on the website here where you talk about special effects, and you talk about using dry ice to create fog. Ha, 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 yeah. And one of the photos... The I won the photo contest with. Oh, photo 20, where the F3s are coming out of the uh, the fog? No, no, that, uh, actually, that picture, I entered that in the photo contest, and MR sent it back to me. They, they didn't want it. Oh, man, it's an incredible photo. I... I the year I won the photo contest, I was making dry ice fog some of the time. It was just something I'd heard about. I thought I'd give it a shot and see how it goes, you know. You know, the biggest problem with people building scenery, I think, is getting started. If you say, oh, man, I can't build scenery. I'm afraid to start. I'm going to mess it up. Then you'll never get uh -huh. any scenery built. But if instead you say, I'll probably mess it up, but what the heck, let's give it a shot and see how it turns out. Chances are it's not going to be as bad as you're afraid of. And you'll learn enough so the next time you do it, it'll, it'll look better, and the next time you do it, it'll look better. Then if you take pictures of it, if you photograph it, and you start looking at the photographs, they'll start giving you clues about things you can improve. And, you know, the whole thing becomes a circle. You take better pictures, you can build better scenery, so you can take better pictures, so you can take, you know, build better scenery, et cetera, et cetera. Um, getting back to the fog, though, my technique yeah. for that was I had a saucepan of the hottest water I could get out of the faucet. I didn't actually boil it on the stove. And I'd throw a lump of dry ice in that, maybe, or maybe a couple of lumps, maybe an inch and a half by two inches by two inches or something each. Yes. And it just starts boiling away, and this fog comes boiling up out of it. So now I'm standing on a chair next to the layout where I'm taking the pictures with fog boiling out of the pan, and the fog is heavier than, than air, so it sort of drifts down. And I'm moving the pan around because I don't want the fog all in one place. I want to make it even. And I've got my other hand, I've got a infrared remote control for my film camera there. And I'm shooting 30-second exposures using the remote control. Okay. So in 30 seconds, what happens is it, uh, it lets the fog move around enough so you don't actually take a picture of the individual stream of uh, dry ice fog. It, 
it all blurs together and makes a very misty, foggy effect. So if you dwell in one place longer, then it gets really, really dense, like right behind that locomotive that you're talking about, the, F, uh, the F7 poking, actually that's an F3, poking its nose out of the fog, going to go across a grade crossing. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's a very dramatic photo. It yeah. looks real. No direct light in a fog shot. Well, at least not in most fog shots. Direct light and, you know, I mean, shadows, and normally you don't associate fog with shadows, although... So you're just you know, using a bounce light? Burning off, you could, you know, then that rule changes, too. Okay. But the idea there was just to uh, take a bunch of pictures. To get a good fog shot, you can sit there going click, 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 and, you know, you'll burn through five pounds of dry ice, and and uh, you'll be wondering whether you got anything, especially if you're shooting with film, because when you're shooting with film, you don't know what you got until after it comes back from the processor. Now on that, uh, okay. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I was lucky I had a pro photo lab uh, that was uh, nearby, and they had a three-hour turnaround on slide film. So when I was doing <laughs> okay. the photo contest, I'd shoot pictures all night, drive to the photo lab, drop the slide film off on the way to work, then go back to the lab at lunch and pick them up, then go home and look at them, see what I did wrong, and then go out in the garage and I try to fix it. And then the next morning I'd be driving to the photo lab with more film again. Well, tell me in that with the F3 coming out of the fog and ready to go across the crossing there, how did you light that? Because it looks like the the source of the light is behind the locomotive. Oh, it is. And okay. So I had a uh, four by eight sheet of plywood, quarter inch birch plywood, and I painted that to look like sky and I built a, a rack to hold it in place behind the layout and so I prop that up then I take a photo flood light and I'd stick the I'd stick the photo flood light so it was shining on the backdrop from behind the layout and that uh, avoids another problem you get with photography which is shadows on the sky and uh, you know that old uh, deep purple song smoke on the water yeah well well it's like dust on the water Shadows on the sky. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, sorry, I digress. So, wow, I didn't you know, know you I, had I a garage that. band background. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, well, that's, you know, that's my generation. That <laughs> song was really popular when I was in the Navy in the early 70s. So, so I'd light the background that way. And then I uh, had a bunch of other photo floods. But instead of aiming them at the layout, I aimed them at the ceiling over the layout to try to make really, really diffuse light coming down. And that was, that was the lighting for this thing. I think I had uh, four 250-watt photo floods running. Okay. Well, it worked. Uh, I shot it with uh, probably with Fujichrome uh, tungsten balance slide film, and the photo floods are 3,200 degrees Kelvin lighting. And, well, you uh, made an interesting statement a while ago when we were talking about this. Sometimes people are reticent to begin scenicing, fear of failure, and so forth. You, you had layouts, then you had your time saver, then you went to the Redmond. Which is the chicken, which is the egg? Did the layouts come first, and then did you improve those because of the techniques you developed on the dioramas? I would think those might uh, relate to each other. What uh, actually was, you know, did one better you and the other? Oh, let's see. Well, the first layout was a switching layout. I mean, we're talking, you know, after I got back in the hobby again here. Let's not count the, the trek I did when I was a teenager. Right, okay. So, I guess 95, I started building a switching layout. And I was partway through with that when I wound up uh, 
changing jobs, and a company I was looking for wanted me to relocate, which is how I ended up in the Portland area. When I got up here, I had a much bigger garage to work in, and I was planning all sorts of wonderful stuff. I was in love with the South Pacific Coast Narrow Gauge Railroad, you know, California Narrow Gauge, and I had this uh, great track plan, at least I thought it was great, all developed to do that in ON3. It was going to be like nasty in terms of construction complexity, all sorts of cantilevering and multiple decks, and I was looking at this and thinking, you know, I never really built a railroad to any stage of completion before. Do I, do I really want to start on this? So I thought, I'll build a 4x8, and that'll, that'll be a lot easier and give me some practice. And when I get it, you know, I'll build it to look nice, like furniture. And when I get it done, we'll move it into the house, and it can be in the house as part of the furniture. You know, move it out of the garage. And so I started building the 4x8, and, yeah, that looked, uh, that looked pretty nice. You know, I never did get that completely finished. But uh, while I was building the 4x8, I picked up the, well, I had this book. I already had the book done, Railroading with John Allen. thought maybe a time saver would be kind of fun, so I, so I built the time saver. I had, I had some leftover track from the first switching layout, so I used that. And I scenic that. And so for a while, I had two layouts. One was the 4x8 layout, which is, you know, twice around. And the... Uh, second one was the time saver. And I belonged to a round robin group that met Tuesday nights, and the guys would come over, and this meant that the ones who weren't running the 4x8 could uh, take turns trying to bang cars on the time saver. So that was kind of fun. And then I started thinking it would be fun to build a, uh, could I connect the two of them together? Uh -huh. you know? And there was a branch line on the 4x8, or what was supposed to be a branch line. I mean, how much of a branch line can you really have on a 4x8 in HO? That's like five feet long total. But uh, I took that, and where it came off the layout, built a U-turn module to hook on there, and, and made a U-turn, and wound up depositing you in Jowan. I, I, I called the time saver Jowan in honor of John Allen, so that's where, that's where Jowan comes from, people wonder. Okay. So I had those hooked together. And then I've got a good friend up here, part of the Tuesday night crew, who, crew, who uh, has a business, uh, uh, Canyon Creek Scenics. And some of you may have heard of him as Pete Fastlow. He makes his living by making trees for model railroads. And he makes some really, really good-looking uh, West Coast uh, conifer trees. I thought it'd be really cool to, you know, try to put some of his trees on the layout and take pictures to see how they'd come out. You know, part of me, you know, I just wanted to see how good I could make it look. And, and Pete was interested, too, because he wanted some pictures of his trees for advertising. This was, you know, he didn't have a website yet, and he was pretty unknown in those days. So, um, Okay, yeah, those are impressive trees. He came over with, like, three boxes of trees ranging in height from two inches to two feet. We're talking wow. HO here. And we put like 130 trees on this uh, two foot by five foot uh, U-turn module. Wound up taking a whole bunch of pictures of that. Some of them worked out pretty good. In fact, I think the, if you look at the current ad for Canyon Creek Scenics and Model Railroad Hobbyist, you know, that's one of the pictures I took on that U-turn module. Okay. Anyway, well, as I... Go ahead. So... But while I was doing this, I kept on thinking it'd be nice to have a bigger layout, and so the idea was uh, just dreaming of track plans all over the place. Didn't really, 
know quite what to do. To join the layout design special interest group, and so I came up with a uh, track plan to build a, you know, a layout that would live in a stall of a garage and a little eight by eight, you know, L attached to the end of the stall. And while I was doing that, the four by eight went by by. I found somebody who wanted it, and they they bought it and made off with it. So that's me with the U-turn module and Jowan, and. So that causeway with the fog picture you were talking about, yeah, um, that was actually, uh, you know, that would get attached to this uh, garage stall out. I had a three-car garage, but for some reason the wife felt like garages should have cars in them. So I got one of the yeah, stalls, and the figure. other two soldiers would have cars in them. Go figure. Who have ever thunk it, huh? Yeah. Anyway, uh, so that lasted a while, and then uh, we were out driving. We, we like to go for drives in the countryside, and we found a property for sale sign, and uh, that turned into the present train room with a house on top of it. So I, I sort of had these things going on at once. The Redland diorama, you know, occurred while I was building the, uh, the big layouts in the basement I've got now. So that was sort of uh, a parallel effort. So it wasn't like it was completely sequential. It was a very a lot of parallelism. Okay. Anyway, uh, uh, so the camera would sort of egg on the modeling, and the modeling would sort of egg on the camera. And, you know, I kept on thinking of new things I could do and wanted to uh, experiment with the outdoor photography, especially after I saw what the pictures were like on the time saver when I took pictures of that outside. The picture that won the award in the MR contest, where you've got that SPNS uh, Alco coming out of Bear Creek Salvage, and I guess that's all of peach trees in the background there. Yeah, that's a bunch of uh, Canyon Creek Phoenix trees and a few other ones. Okay. So, Where'd the idea for this scene come from? Well, first of all, that scene doesn't really exist. Okay. I uh, took a piece of uh, a four-foot by two-foot piece of pink foam, and I sort of set it in behind the U-turn, and I put round grocery bag paper on top of that to kill the pink, and then I uh, plugged a bunch, and I just plugged trees into it going, you know, the trees have spikes, and I just plug them right through the brown paper into the pink foam. And then I sprinkled a bunch of green stuff in. And that was far enough away, and you couldn't get a good look at it, that it made a, a decent background. Okay. Anyway, the uh, so I was taking pictures for the contest forever. I think I shot over 14 rolls of film, you know, doing that contest. And, you know, I just kept on trying new things, looking for different angles. I mean, you can, you, you walk into a layout, and there's a, an immediate obvious way oh we can shoot here there's there's the yeah uh, there's the scene but sometimes that doesn't work out and if you look around though you'll see well if we come over here we can get a different angle of the scene and if we go over there you get a different angle if you put the camera into the scene instead of having a tripod sitting you know in the aisle someplace that'll give you a much more personal viewpoint sometimes of course you got to be careful because it's real easy to start seeing garage in the background instead of layout Okay. So if you're looking at trying to take pictures that look like they're real, then you, know, you don't want to have the garage in the background. That's a no-no. And the scene itself sort of evolved over time. That spur came into existence because I was posting on one of the e-groups about uh, modifying a turnout to make it DCC-friendly. Mm -hmm. And uh, Andy Sprandio asked me to write an article about that. I'd never written an article for a magazine before, but he asked me to do it, and I thought, that sounds like fun. So I, so I wrote an article about, uh, you know, how do you chop it up and insulate it and connect things here and remove this and add that to uh, to make a turnout DCC-friendly. 
And then they said, we need a lead photo. And I said, what's a lead photo? And I said, well, it's a picture that shows the, uh, the thing you're working on in, you know, in action or in, in situation. It should be something that will grab people's attention. Okay. So I said, okay, uh, let me work on that. So I went away, and uh, the Bear Creek salvage scene was actually uh, a result of uh, making that lead photo for that article. Okay. And then a one-year uh, one prize in their photo contest. That worked yeah. out well. Yeah, it was fun making those buildings. It was, uh, I think that was a, a JV models kit, if I remember. It's called Ward Salvage. But when you open up the, the kit box, instead of finding a bunch of plastic pieces, what you find is sticks. Okay. And, uh, and some directions on how to glue the sticks together. So I, I glued the sticks together and then ignored some of the directions on other parts of it. And then... Uh, came up with my own way of doing the roofing. Yeah. Basically, I'm using diluted white glue to glue tissue paper down on top of the board so the tissue paper's thin enough. It's about the right scale thickness for tar paper, I guess. And okay. uh, it, it wound up working okay. One of the trickier parts was uh, making the stencil to, uh, to put Bear Creek salvage on the side of the building. That was the, you know, I wound up uh, printing that on a printer and then using an X-Acto knife to cut the letters out make stencils and that was tricky and then you start taking pictures you just get the photographs are in my case the slides back and look at them and say well that looks nice but over here looks kind of empty there's uh -huh. some details i can put there so, okay a couple of pallets with some barrels on them this looks empty over here so okay uh, take some you strip wood and distress it real good like it's getting really ratty and cut it to length and here's a pile of dead ties and maybe a couple of uh, deadfall branches someplace. And, you know, you go out in the garden and you, you find something nasty that's fallen off a bush, you plop that down. You know, some uh, some tanks here of uh, this, some tanks there of that. I got a, I think it was a metalworks car. I don't remember really what it was. And I rusted the heck out of it and pounded it with a hammer to make it look like it'd been a rollover wreck. And it is a salvage company. And, you know, making sure the rolling stock has some weathering on it is important because rolling stock might have been shiny when it came out of the factory, but it didn't stay that way for very long once it was out on the railroad and the rain and the soot. Right. I mean, it's really bad in the days of steam and not much better when you're following a string of Alcos around. You know, premium on not keeping all their boxcars nice and shiny. Weathering almost evolving into its own science within the, uh, the hobby. You know, there's some uh, guys who do such good jobs of weathering and just envious of all get out. Yeah, I've been uh, getting some critiques of uh, some cars and locomotives from one of the weathering sites, and they can be blunt in their uh, critique of uh, how you've done it. So the again, I'm just I'm really impressed with the the model photography website, and like I said, it's almost a tutorial. If you're listening, you need to go to Charlie's website. Click on the how-to links, which will take you to, he's got a number of how-to pages, everything from spine road bed, paved dirt roads, bracing. And then down there is a model railroad photography link and model railroad photography outdoors links. And check these out. They are loaded with how-to information. Charlie has tons of photos in there with comments of just what he's illustrating. So if this is what you want to do, and I'm one of these people, I love photographing my models. You know, there's just a wealth of information in here. 
when I was preparing for the interview, I'd actually already tried some of these uh, because my whole layout is, is outdoors. I don't have a basement or anything like that. What he says here is very true. Ryan, do you have anything? Charlie, your site's wonderful. It's very easy to navigate, easy to just step through and, and look at the wonderful photos you took and, and try to take in what you did. So I can try to replicate it when I get my layout together. So uh, definitely a wonderful stroll down uh, the photography lane of model railroads. Oh, thank you. I, uh, I put those pages together because I found myself trying to answer questions people had about photography that asked in one of the e-groups. And then I'd be writing War and Peace uh, style responses to the question that they posted. And it just seemed easier to make a web page than to be writing War and Peace every couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> And they say a picture says a thousand words, and sometimes in model railroading it says a lot more than that. Well, thank you for coming on with us, Charlie. We appreciate it. You're very welcome. Yeah, appreciate your time. And I'm sure we've only nicked a little bit of the things you've, you know, about model railroading and things you've learned over the years. So you and I have talked offline about getting you on model railcast, so we're going to have to get that set up. Well, we could do that. Sounds good. Anything you have in closing, Paul or Charlie? No, just, again, I appreciate uh, Charlie's time and sharing his knowledge on the uh, photography, since that's a hot button with me. So thanks, uh, thanks again, Charlie. Anyway, thank you, for, uh, thank you for having me, and it was great. 